Welcome to the Equine Veterinary Journal Podcasts. Hi and welcome to the April edition of the EVJ Podcast. I'm your host, Rhiannon Morgan. Today, Anna Johnston joins us to discuss the effects of stress fracture on future racing performance. And Anne Durham describes the neuroanatomy of the thoracolumbar spine with respect to interspinous ligament desmotomy. Anna Johnston graduated with a master's in veterinary epidemiology and continued on this path as a research assistant at the City University of Hong Kong. Anna will be discussing her recent paper titled The Effect of Stress Fracture Occurring Within the First 12 Months of Training on Subsequent Race Performance in Thoroughbreds in Hong Kong. Anna, thanks very much for joining us today to discuss your recent paper on stress fractures. Thank you. So we'll start off with some of the basics. Could you tell us what a stress fracture is, um, why they occur, and why some sites within the skeleton are more affected than others? Of course. Uh, So stress fractures are incomplete cracks in the bone. They are often caused by mechanical bone fatigue due to accumulative micro-damage caused by continuous cyclical loading of bone at high peak strains. The degree of loading on the appendicular skeleton is linearly associated with speed. Therefore, the appendicular skeleton of racehorses is particularly susceptible to stress fracture due to the high level of loading and strain experience during high-speed exercise. Furthermore, horses starting training after a period of rest or a spell, such as approximately the eight weeks of reduced exercise that horses encounter when being imported into Hong Kong, are at a higher risk of fracture due to their unadapted bone, which is unable to withstand these high levels of strain encountered during exercise. So how do horses with a stress fracture present um, and how are they commonly diagnosed? Typically, uh, clinical signs of stress fractures usually include varying degrees of either intermittent or continuous lameness, depending on the severity and location of bone failure. Stress fractures are commonly diagnosed using imaging modalities such as nucleus integraphy and radiography. Uh, Nucleus integraphy is considered the gold standard for the early diagnosis of stress fractures due to its sensitivity at detecting increased bone resorption and formation and is therefore frequently used as a diagnostic tool at the Hong Kong Jockey Club. So what were the aims of this study? The aims of the study were to describe the occurrence of stress fractures diagnosed by nucleus integraphy in racehorses during their first year training in Hong Kong and to describe the racing performance of horses after recovering from a stress fracture. So how did you categorise the, popula- the population of horses you included in the study and um, what kind of exercise intervals were recorded? We undertook a one to two matched case control study with all thoroughbred horses imported into Hong Kong from January 2006 to June 2018, forming the study population. Training and racing data for all these horses uh, in the study were retrospectively collected from the date of import to 365 days after the date of stress fracture diagnosis. This included daily information on whether the horses had raced, barrier trialled, which had non-competitive training races, cantered, trot, or also swum in the equine swimming pool. And how were cases and controls defined? Cases were defined as 
thoroughbred racehorses sustaining a stress fracture to the appendicular skeleton, diagnosed by clinical signs of lameness associated with the corresponding limb and confirmed by nucleosyntigraphy within the first year after import into Hong Kong. And controls were those without clinical signs of stress fracture diagnosed by any means within that first year after import. These controls were also matched to the same import date as cases in order to control for confounding factors associated with the horse's time spent training in Hong Kong. And how did you measure the outcome data? Well, for all horses, the number of days from import to the first trottle canter, gallop, barrier trial and race were calculated. And this was again measured for case horses on returning to training following stress fracture diagnosis. Racing performance was measured in three-month periods following the date of stress fracture diagnosis for the subsequent 12 months post-fracture. These included the number of racing starts, the uh, racing earnings, and also the placing percentage, which was defined as the percentage of top three placings out of the number of total racing starts. And for match controls, this information was measured from the date of stress fracture diagnosis of their corresponding matched case. So how many horses did you end up including um, and what percentage of these suffered stress fractures? In total, 261 horses made up the study population. 87 of these were cases and 174 were match controls. The instance risk of horses sustaining a nucleus integrity confirmed stress fracture during the first year training in Hong Kong over the eight-year study period was 1.7%. And when you compared the histories and training programmes of the cases versus the match controls, did you see any significant differences? Uh, We found that horses began training after a median of 21 days from import and began gallop work after a median of 44 days from import. Interestingly, no significant differences in these training timings between cases and match controls were identified and signalments such as whether horses had raced prior to import, the sex or the country of origin of these horses were also not significantly associated with stress fracture occurrence. However, we did find that 25% of stress fracture diagnoses actually occurred before horses began fast ex- uh, exercise, uh, sort of gallop exercise. And, and which stress, stress fractures did you find most common? What, what were the sites? And did the site have any effect on outcome data? So we found that stress fractures occurred after a median of 112 days from import. And 42% of these cases were humeral stress fractures, followed by 27% being tibial stress fractures. And on recovery, uh, comparing these two sites, approximately 95% of humeral stress fracture cases returned to barrier trials within a year of diagnosis compared to 71% of tibial stress fracture cases. So quite a difference. So how quickly were the horses returned to full work post-stress fracture diagnosis? And did this significantly affect the overall length of the horse's career? So 95% of cases returned to training. And in total, they missed a median of 63 days off, uh, uh, off of exercise due to this stress fracture. And from the date of stress fracture diagnosis, horses returned to barrier trials after a median of 161 days. 
Interestingly, no significant differences in career length are found between cases and their match controls. Okay, so that leads on to my next question, whether any significant differences between um, the racing performance between cases and match controls occurred, so that this wasn't the case. No, overall, uh, in the 12 months subsequent to this stress fracture diagnosis, cases had uh, a median of four fewer racing starts and earned approximately 206,000 Hong Kong dollars less than controls, which is equivalent to around 19,000 pounds. But by nine months post-stress fracture, there were no significant differences between cases and controls in the odds of racing or being placed in the top three or having racing earnings. So that leads us back to um, thinking about the rest period or time of no training. Why do you think the time of, of well, the time to training after import, effectively the time of rest, had no impact on the incidence of stress fracture? And what do you think um, the impact of this on the pathology is? I think that uh, the data we uh, hadn't used didn't encapsulate various aspects of uh, horses being in training not limited to uh, like the rate of increase in intensity and frequency of exercise uh, and the distance and the speed of the workouts, things like that, which is likely to have impacted the instance of stress fracture much more than simply the time from import to the start of each sort of training event. So you think it may be factors within the type of training that they're experiencing? Yeah, I think so. Okay. And any thoughts on where this research is going to to lead in future? I think it'd be interesting to further explore the role of exercise, as sort of previously mentioned, the intensity and the rate of increase in in workload uh, as risk factors for musculoskeletal injury in racehorses, um, as well as the impact of the training and racing surfaces themselves, particularly the ground reaction forces experienced by the horse during exercise and what association this may have and the fact that this may sort of play in the the instance of injury. And and overall, what would your like pertinent take-home message be? I think that really by ensuring appropriate management, racehorses can make a complete recovery from, from stress fractures diagnosed in early stage by nucleosyntigraphy with uh, ultimately unimpaired long-term athletic performance. Okay, well, thank you for your time um, talking us through the study, Anna. Brilliant, thank you. Anne Durham is an equine surgeon at Sycamore Lodge Equine Hospital in County Kildare. She started this research during her surgical residency at UCD. Her paper is titled Implications of the Neuroanatomy of the Equine Thoracolumbar Vertebral Column with Regional Anesthesia and complications following desmotomy of the interspinous ligament. And thanks very much for joining us to talk about your recent paper on um, impinging spinous processes in horses and complications following desmotomy of the interspinous ligament. That's no problem at all. Thank you very much for, for having me on. It's, it's a pleasure to be part of the EVJ podcast. So if we start with some of the basics, um, why are impinging spinous processes thought to cause pain? Um, what surgical techniques are currently being used? And are surgical approaches thought to be more effective um, than ma- medical management? 
Yeah, so I suppose with kissing spines or impinging uh, dorsal spinous processes, the thought process has been that it's, it appears to be more of a multifactorial issue. Um, it's certainly not one component that's uh, driving it. And even if you look through the current literature and that, there is still some debate regarding what is causing this. Mm -hmm. um, if you x-ray a lot of horses nowadays, especially thoroughbreds, you're probably going to come up between somewhere between 51 and 95% and, and of horses having radiographic signs of uh, impinging spinous process, but with no actual uh, clinical signs. Then it kind of re loads into why do these horses suddenly become painful? Um, and certainly some, some thought process is that it's uh, a lameness pre sort of pre-starts the whole thing. And this leads to overloading or misuse uh, muscle atrophy and that allows the spinous processes to move, uh, just micro movement. And this kind of becomes, um, they get quite sore and uh, reactive around the bone. And then the uh, ligament then as secondary becomes, uh, I suppose, hyper reactive to it. Uh, and the, the, the nerve pathway within the interspinous ligaments become quite um, heightened and they become quite painful. So that's one of, one of the, Kind of thought processes behind it and then another one is that these horses just the type of use that they they do mm -hmm. you get an awful lot of motion at the um, l5 l6 junction on uh, in their backs and horses that jump uh, tend to be they they query whether there's again because of this is where the motion is that when these horses are jumping they're exacerbating that so if they have these radiographic lesions they become uh, predisposed to pain down the line because of this movement um, so that there are a couple of the kind of I suppose more common thought processes behind pain, um, but as I said, it's it's multifactorial. You have an awful lot of um, anatomy in that region in terms of articular process joints, so osteoarthritis being prevalent there, soft tissue injuries, um, in terms of uh, the multifidus uh, and there are other other um, muscles in that region, and then so um, fractures. Um, and a couple of other things as well, I suppose, there's, you get into kind of the weird and wonderful then as well. But then you've also got nerve pain as well then around there. Um, in terms of surgery, uh, surgery was first described about 50 years ago. It's kind of come on a little bit since then. Originally, it was um, quite a, a, a crescenteric uh, or crescentic incision. And then they they transect out the um, transverse or sorry, the dorsal spinous process to take a transverse cut through it. Uh, that moved on then to the subtotal or cranial wedge osteotomies, and now there's also the desmotomy technique that we're we're currently using quite quite routinely. Um, in terms of which is worse, better, uh, you know, in terms of surgery versus medicine, it depends on what you're looking at. For medicine, medical treatment, which involves corticosteroids injected into the back, you're looking at about you can look at a quite a good response to the treatment, but the problem is that you're typically only getting about four to six weeks out of these horses. Um, so you end up doing repeated treatments. Um, so there's been a couple of papers. I know um, Steckel's paper back back in the 90s, I think, or earlier, sorry. Um, he, he saw quite a similarity between his medical and surgical patients, but the problem was that the patients had to come back to, um, to be treated every six weeks. Um, whereas other papers have, have sort of shown a higher outcome with the surgical techniques. 
And what, what kind of complications can be seen after surgical management of impinging processes? Yeah, um, again, some of the papers are a little bit, I suppose they're a little bit more vaguer on uh, the post-op complications with them. Most of the time, though, the papers have discussed that the cosmesis has been excellent for them. Um, you know, it's good to excellent in most papers, I think in about 90 to 100% of them. Uh, what they have seen is usually small little bumps or depressions, and that's particularly with, um, it's been seen with the desmotomy and the subtotal um, ostectomy as well. Um, now, there hasn't been, they didn't really give a percentage, any of the papers have given really percentages on this, but there is some data to say that those small depressions do do heal up over time. Um, I know from my own um, case log that there's definitely a few of those horses still always have that little bit of a residual depression there, um, that you can you can you know find your incision site. Um, the other issues I suppose would be white hairs that's been seen in a few both in the um, desmotomy and with the subtotal as well. Uh, the big thing I suppose, and that leads us on to this paper, is the neurogenic atrophy. So that's where they've had. Um, neurogenic atrophy of the contralateral muscle um, following surgery. And that's been a previously unreported complication um, from the desmotomy uh, technique. So that was that was our big thing that we've found. Um, in terms of other than that, though, we haven't seen any other. It's, it's more, like I said, cosmetic uh, complications that we're seeing with regards to the surgery. Okay, and that that brings us on to to your paper nicely. So, you've been looking at implications of the neuroanatomy um, of the thoracolumbar column, um, and then thinking about regional anaesthesia and complications following desmotomy of the ligament. Um, so, it's quite a complex topic, the neuroanatomy. Um, and I'd urge all readers to go and look at the diagrams in the paper. But could you give us a basic description of the nerve pathways? associated yeah for sure it is it's definitely it, it's very heavy based and like you said i would urge people to look at the the diagrams it, it certainly it makes it an awful lot easier to follow um so essentially you've got paired spinal nerves along the thoracic lumbar region so you've 18 thoracic and six lumbar and these provide motor and sensory functions to to the back um now as you go along the 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 thoracic lumbar region, the spinal nerve emerges, and as it's emerging, you get a dorsal root and a ventral root, and that's before that's before they come out of the intervertebral foramen. Now, once they come out, then you got you, they do branch, and you get the dorsal ramus. You have the ramus communicans, the ventral ramus, and um, at the small um, meningeal branch as well. Uh, we kind of, I suppose. Ignore the small, the small meningeals provide um, innervation off to the dura mater in that, um, and the rams communicans go off to the viscera. The ones that we're concerned with were the dorsal and ventral ramus. Now, the ventral ramus, its nerves will send that they send them off to, um, they become the intercostal nerves basically. Uh, so, our big interest was then this dorsal ramus. Now, when that emerges, it then it will then subdivide again. And you get a medial and lateral branch, and that's pretty standard across, you know, all the way down along the thoracic and lumbar region and in the cervical region, um, and, a, and across species that you get this branching at the of the dorsal ramus, um, at the med into like I said the medial and lateral. But going back through um, other comparative species, in that we've been able to locate a, what they call an intermediate branch of um, 
off the, the nerve and it's coming off usually the lateral. But this intermediate branch is not consistent in, in its placing and it's not consistent um, in the species either. So you do get variance. And going through this, this information and, and the fact that we were getting 5% of our patients were getting this neurogenic atrophy, it led kind of it led us to, to, to question why are we only seeing it in some horses and um, you know when the surgical technique is is being performed the same way in all of them and this could sort of brought up the topic of this this uh intermediate nerve and potentially that this is this is the root of of the neurogenic atrophy okay so the intermediate nerve was the one you were thinking um of as being the the cause in this in this situation. So it comes from the dorsal ramus, thought to be in, inconsistently present in horses um, and at variable uh, locations. Um, what does it innervate? So it will run along and innervate along with uh, the, we think, see, again, we're thinking it, it'll run in along with the um, longissimus and that. Um, the, in particular, longissimus and the iliocostalis and that, we, we wondered what is, was it innervating in along there. Um, the problem with these structures is obviously that following these nerve roots or nerve endings is, has been quite problematic because when they start subdividing like that, you, you end up losing the, the nerve, ends, nerve endings. So we are, this is all sort of hypothesis at the moment as to why this is happening. Um, and we have yet to fully determine that this intermediate nerve is consistently present in horses. Um, and, you know, and then obviously then what they're innervating muscle-wise. Okay, so what aspect of the interspinous ligament desmotomy technique um, was thought to be responsible or possibly responsible for affecting, maybe affecting this nerve and therefore being responsible for the segmental neurogenic atrophy? Yeah, so what we, the approach that we take, uh, on, like Coomer was the original um, descriptor of the, of the surgery and that they describe about three centimetres lateral to midline for their approach. And our surgeon uh, found that because of the severe overriding in some, in some of these cases that we're presenting, it's very difficult to get your scissors to get across the space and to cut the ligament fully. And um, so what he did was to go more lateral. So you're looking about four to five centimeters lateral to the midline. Now that allowed, you're going in with the scissors at a more horizontal angle, and it was actually allowing the scissors to get across the space much easier and allowing you to get a good, a, a better cut of the ligament. The problem we feel is that that's allowed the scissors to go too far across the midline into the contralateral site. And in certain regions, then it, we're, Clearly, then when it was cut, it has cut a nerve along that muscle and led to this uh, segmental muscle atrophy that we're seeing. And which muscles were you thinking were um, atrophying as a consequence to this? Was there, was there a particular set of muscles and was there a particular point from cranial to caudal in the thoracolumbar spine that this occurred more? Yeah, so we assumed... Apparently, we, we, we certainly thought that the longissimus dorsi was the one that was being affected. Um, now, unfortunately, and it's a huge limitation to the original paper, um, we didn't ultrasound any of our, our horses post-op that developed this atrophy. Um, you know, that would have been a very, I suppose, quick and easy way to determine which muscle had, had atrophied off. 
the reason we reckoned it was more superficial um, muscles. So potentially, like I said, we think longus was dorsi, but it could have also been um, the trapezius or the latissimus because they're more superficial as well. Um, the reason we felt that the multifidus wasn't included in this is because this had no effect that we could see on uh, post-op outcome in terms of uh, racing performance. Um, and certainly the multifidus is considered a stabilizing or destabilizing muscle of the vertebral column in horses and in like in humans. And any sort of trauma to it usually leads to quite significant um, back pain or performance issues. So that's why we, again, we were looking at more, it was more suggestive of something like the longissimus or the latissimus. Uh, okay sorry go on oh, sorry go on yeah so just thinking about the timeline surrounding post-op um recovery how quickly did you see the atrophy um how long did it persist and did it return to normal or did the atrophy um remain yeah it was interesting that this atrophy wasn't appearing until you're looking at probably two to three weeks post-op which was um was again sort of pushed us towards thinking more the longissimus or um the latissimus because the multifidus itself has been shown that if if it suffers any damage it will atrophy within about four days time um and typically obviously you wouldn't see the multifidus atrophying you know it's so, it's so deep so um we were seeing it at about two to three weeks we basically did physiotherapy was our recommendation for our clients um, of the horses um, that I've seen, you know, the ones that were, I suppose, going back and doing the physiotherapy with them, they've reported good outcomes following that. But it's taking about three to four months time, which, again, would tie in with, I suppose, re as well in, in nerves if they've suffered any sort of trauma. OK, and thinking, coming back to diagnostic analgesia as well, which is included in the paper. How do you think um, this affects certain spinal nerves or which spinal nerves do you think are being affected when um, inserting or um, administering local analgesia in the area? Yeah, it's a really good question, Rianne, because I, like, I'm not anti-using uh, di- uh, diagnostic anal- analgesia in the back. It's just that on, we just have very little information regarding the anatomy that we're dealing with. Um, and the question over, you know, these these um, variable spinal nerve pathways in the muscles just le- um, leads to the fact that, you know, if you're there's different, I suppose, protocols for the way people are injecting backs as well. Um, you know, depending on the paper you read, it's different volumes and different positionings, different, you know, different sites and different amounts of time that you leave between um, blocking and then actually examining the horse. And what we would kind of be cautious about is that if you, you know, the potential for injecting um, local and it diffusing to nerves that you are unaware of in the region can lead to false positives, is what I would say, towards, um, you know, interspinous um, overriding. Okay, so just to think about the whole um the whole paper, what would your takeaway message or your pertinent message be for vets listening? Yeah, I think for for us, certainly, um, you know, look, back pain is, is prevalent. We There's no argument about that. And it's becoming more and more diagnosed. Um, I think 
The take home is that the horses that you are, if you do decide or elect to go for surgical management, you need to discuss with your client what is the outcome. You know, if cosmesis is fundamental, you know, if this is a sport horse or a dressage horse, I would be erring on the side of caution and, and using the approach described by Coomer, which would be to do the three centimeters lateral to dorsal midline. Um, because they've never reported this, this complication. Um, what we would do is if you are concerned going in with a horse that's got extreme overriding, then yes, I think going more lateral, um, as we had described, is probably a more, I think it's you get less trauma having to go in with the scissors, you get an easier um, cut across it. But you need to make the client aware that this is a potentially um, a complication, but that it is from our our papers um our study so far that we don't see this being um a performance limiting issue and the other thing i would say is that for the diagnostic blocking i would just i would have a little bit still reservation regarding um solely basing um surgery off of um a horse responding to to local anesthetic injected into its back and um, i feel that the I, I feel that it's more the diagnosis of kissing spines is probably better based off of if you can rule out every other issue and in terms of lameness and that, if you can block out, you know, or like I said, remove the lameness issue, poor performance from upper airway, et cetera, and, and what you're left with is back pain, then I think that's more of a, an indicator rather than just, you know, getting a response to local anesthetic in the back. Great. Well, Anne, thank you very much for um, your time today. No problem. Thank you very much for having me. I hope it made it a little bit more um, easier to follow through the paper. Yeah, it did. <laughs> Thanks very much. Thanks again for listening and please join us in two months for the next episode. Thank you for listening to this Equine Veterinary Channel podcast. More about the subjects discussed today can be found online at wileyonlinelibrary.com forward slash journal forward slash evj.